0: All right, guys, uh, fasten your seatbelts, turn in your Bible to Isaiah, chapter 3. We are rocking along in our verse-by-verse study of Isaiah. This is uh, the third longest book in the Bible, and uh, so our pace has to be a bit brisk, uh, so we get through this in a reasonable amount of time. But uh, what we're rocking along here in chapter 3, I just want to remind you kind of where we're at uh, in our study, um, the title of the message this morning is Leaders and Ladies, Leaders and Ladies, and you'll see why uh, that is our uh, our title here in a moment as you're turning there. Uh, just a reminder, we're in a section that uh, the, the, the author, uh, Isaiah, as he has put this together as God has revealed uh, these messages to him, um, he, he's, and, and you'll, you'll, I've said this before and I'm going to say it and say it and, and eventually we'll all just know this by rote memory, but the book of Isaiah is largely about two major themes. And the first theme is uh, the need for repentance in light of the wickedness and the sin of the people, uh, and that there is, there is a coming judgment if repentance does not occur. And at the same time, there is a future hope that God will redeem his people. And that there, there is a future even for this, this sorry, lost, rebellious group called Israel that we see here in this book. I mean, These are God's people. These are, these are the folks that saw the Red Sea parted. Uh, these are the same people that received the covenants and the law. These are the people whom God meets with personally. He doesn't do that with anyone else. And yet they 've rebelled, and, and you know some, some of the takeaways for us I, I hope you're seeing how relevant this book is for us today, but you know one of the takeaways from this book is that familiarity with God can be a dangerous a dangerous commodity, can it uh, Just because you know the Bible, you have a Bible, you go to church, you go to a good Bible teaching church, you may have heard that your whole life and and you know you can you can recite the books of the Bible backwards in Greek and Hebrew, well, good for you. But that familiarity doesn't translate into the trust and faithfulness and obedience that God calls us to. And you know, one of the things that uh, that Paul's going to say in the New Testament, looking back to the Old Testament, he's, he's going to say, "If God's people can fall into sin like this, let's not think that we're beyond the same temptation." So we need to be careful with familiarity. So this section in chapters. Two, three, and four that we're looking at today, we see uh, we, we've seen some of this already. There's this vision of the Jerusalem to come, and and our author uh, uh, pours out this wonderful picture of what God will do with His people and His city in the future. And then, as we're going to see next week, um, he, he will um, he will again come back to this vision of the New Jerusalem, and he will introduce in chapter four for the very first time. The Messiah. So it's coming. I told you it was coming. The Messiah will be introduced in chapter 4 as one of his many titles in the book of Isaiah uh, in chapter 4, verse 2. If you want to just peek there, I'll give you a little sneak preview. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And that word branch points to the ultimate work of the Messiah. So uh, as we might walk away today rather discouraged... We know that this chapter of hope and the Messiah is coming quickly. So here's where we're at. We talked last time about the spiritual condition of present day Jerusalem. Now we're going to talk about the social condition. And as I mentioned, the the, the title of the message is Leaders and Ladies. You think about a society. Think about our, let's just think about our nation. And we think about how significant certain players are in our society. Uh, Sociologists for decades have noted how the American family has changed. And maybe you've noticed some of this before. Uh, Some of you may remember in your childhood how different family units were uh, at a time where most uh, families consisted of a, a married husband and wife in the home, and marriage was in general honored in society, uh, a, a, a view of marriage that uh, that was not all that the Bible envisions, but was consistent at least with the biblical view of marriage. We think about a day and age where moms and dads, and particularly moms, took a a pride and a, and a right focus on the raising of their children and recognizing that, that children don't come into the world automatically becoming everything that God wants them to be. They need parents to shepherd them and help them. And, and there was a generation when moms especially took that role uh, seriously and, and invested in the life of the, their children. And, and here I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bemoaning the fact that, that women uh, have careers today for the most part. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that's a bad development necessarily. What I'm saying is there was a time... When women in the home saw that role of parenting as a very, very important and and uh, essential role in the home, uh, we we talk about what's changed in terms of couples living together. We we talk about changes in terms of what the what the definition of marriage is. We we, we talk today that we got to define terms like boy and girl. Uh, who would have thought we would have come to this? This place where a boy and a girl would need to be defined. And, and that wasn't even obvious to the most uh, casual observer in society. So, so families have changed. We've also seen leadership change, haven't we? Leaders at all levels. Think about dads and husbands. Uh, even even unbelieving researchers are saying, where are the dads? Where are men who who care about their families care about their homes we think about politicians and and the corruption that that's always existed but we see it at a level that is uh uh j- just completely over the top and and um i don't know how much you follow politics and what's going on but but you think about um you know scandals and and uh judicial committees and and uh, investigations and all of that and and you know there there was a time not too long ago that our congress had enough integrity that if a person had legitimately committed a crime in and they held a a position of office our congress had enough moral integrity to get rid of that person it was the right thing to do and now it's all about defending your image and making excuses, and, and political posturing, because integrity has gone by the wayside, even in our political realm, for the most part. We're thankful for for some leaders that still try to do that, and, and want to acknowledge that. But, so, when we look at a society, we think about how essential the family is, and we think about how essential leadership is. And what Isaiah is going to do in our Uh, chapter here today is he is going to put the microscope of god's inspection on the leaders of israel and on the women in israel we say man why is he going to pick on the girls because the reality is societies often stand or fall not so much on the role of the men although that's true but on what's going on in the homes, what's going on in the families, what's going on behind the scenes. Who are those leaders married to? And what influence are those women having on those leaders? Okay, we'll see all of this develop today. But that's why Isaiah is going to turn his attention to the leaders and to the ladies today. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, Henei in, in Hebrew. Whenever you see that word, it's usually translated behold, um, that's a reminder that we need to stop and pay attention. Because the Lord is going to speak. And in light of... The, remember, we've just been talking about this coming day of judgment, this coming day of reckoning where God will judge His people. Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. So now we've gone from this future final judgment to a temporal judgment, something that God God is going to do in the lives of the people today. Now notice, first of all, this title. Did you catch it? Look closely in your Bible at verse 1, The Lord God of hosts. Do you see that there? I want you to notice with me that the word Lord has a capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. Do you notice that in your Bible? Okay, most of your translations will do this. Do you notice, secondly, that the word God is in all capital letters? Do you see that there? Okay, now you need to pay attention when your Bible does that. That, That's not a misprint. That's not like the editors accidentally had the caps lock on when they typed the word God. That is code language. That's an indication to you and I, the English reader, that there's something going on in the Hebrew text that underlies this particular phrase that we need to pay attention to. Okay, so the Lord, little l... God, all capital or Lord, um, in terms of just uh, capital L, lowercase O R D, and then all capital G O D tells us that in Hebrew we have the word Master and the word Yahweh, the personal name of God, used back to back. Okay, that's why it's distinguished. All that you say. Well, how do you know that? Well, believe it or not, at the very beginning of all of your English Bible translations, there's an introduction. And if you have never read the introduction to your actual Bible, whether it's King James, ESV, New American Standard, I would encourage you to read that because there are lots of things that the translators do to try to help you understand the text better. So this is one way we can familiarize that. The word Lord, you guys know that word, it's Adonai, it means Lord or Master. Um, The word Yahweh, the personal name of God... Uh, which we just distinguish Y-H-W-H. Those are the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And then, of hosts. I love this title. Why does God designate Himself here the Lord God of hosts? Or we might translate it, the Master Yahweh of His military troops. That's what the word hosts means. It means military troops. So when you see the word the Lord of hosts, you need to think it's God in BDUs, right? It's God coming in his battle fatigues. This is, this is God's title as the commander and chief of all of the armies of heaven. Now you need to get this because whenever you see that, God is coming in some sort of military, uh, intervention. And and so this is not God coming as our friend. This is not even God coming as our Savior, although He does come. This is God coming to do battle. And we need to have that picture in our mind. That's what that picture evokes as we read that title. Uh, Sometimes we could think of it as uh, this this Lord God of hosts as just God Almighty. He he is the commander-in-chief of all the armies of the host of heaven It's a picture of his power and his wisdom and his position uh, as that great military leader that he is. Now, now notice what is God going to do as he comes with his angelic host, his cosmic army behind him. What is he going to do? What's he going to take away? Yeah. I mean, isn't that what military leaders do? They come into a country that they're going to conquer, and what do they do? They try to cut off the food supply, cut off the water supply. That's how you gain victory. So God is coming and doing what military leaders do. He's going to cut off food and water. And we go, ah, why would God do that to his people? We say, man... Um, you know, if you went home today, and you went and turned on your faucet, and nothing came out, and then you went to your refrigerator, and it was empty, and you went to your pantry, and there was nothing there, that would probably get your attention, wouldn't it? And then you say, no problem, I'll just run up to HEB, and you walk in HEB, closed, and you, you peer in the window, and there's nothing on the shelves. That would get your attention, wouldn't it? And that's what God is doing. Something has happened that is so significant that God has resorted to drastic measures to try to get the attention of His people. I mean, He's sent prophets, there's been miracles done. We think of Elijah and Elisha, we, we think of um, calls for repentance. We think, I mean, now remember, in Isaiah's time, the, the northern kingdom has already been taken away and destroyed. And they're, they're standing there. You remember the map? There, there's Judah surrounded by the nation of Assyria. God's like, when are you going to start paying attention to this? You need to listen, Judah. So he's going to cut off that, that, that little phrase, supply and support means the totality of basic material supplies. No food and water. There's going to be a famine. There is going to be uh, a lack of clean water as god comes in his judgment and one we're going to one of the things we're going to see is that this is going to be fulfilled when babylon comes and destroys we're going to see this literally fulfilled when babylon comes uh, in a few more decades to do this okay now What's going on here? Why would God need to get their attention? Why would he go to such great and severe lengths? Look at verse 2. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter, and I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them." And the people will be oppressed, each one by another, each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. God puts his crosshairs on the leaders, the the leaders that have great positions, all the way down to, to Joe the plumber that works in society. And he indicts, the leaders, the men of the land for their corruption. That's why this judgment is coming. It's ungodly leaders. Let me just unpack some of these terms for you. So the mighty man and the warrior would refer to military leaders. The judge and the prophet refer to national leaders. The diviner, elder, captain, and the honorable man refer to local level leaders, governing authorities, uh, people that, that work at the, at the city level or at the local level. And the counselor and the enchanter, notice those are used in contrast there. Uh, And and what God is saying is there are people in legitimate professions and there are people in illegitimate professions. We talked about witchcraft and sorcery that's going on amongst God's people, things that were clearly, clearly forbidden in the law. And God says it doesn't matter if you have a legitimate business or an illegitimate business, you're all coming under judgment. Notice here the the artisan. Do you see that little term there used in verse three? That's Joe the plumber. I mean, that's your everyday uh, businessman. This is the guy that that goes in and uh, and he's a carpenter. He goes in and uh, he's a. a, a a gardener. He's a, a farmer. He's, you know, it, it, the idea is that it's not just the military officials that are corrupt. He's saying from, from the guy with the eight to five job all the way up to the commander in chief of the army, everyone has been indicted by God. Now, now look at what God says. So, so that, that's the takeaway, right? All society is corrupt. Everyone here is coming under God's judgment because they've all gone astray. Now I want you to see this. Verse 4, what's God gonna do? He says, Well, I'm gonna make lads their princes and capricious children will rule over them. In other words, God says, I'm going to put people over you in leadership positions that are unfit and immature. Now that's what's been going on here, okay? Now let me kind of just give you a couple of examples of this. Remember, the book of Isaiah, The book of Isaiah is is written at a time and it overlaps with the historical books of the Bible. So Isaiah is taking place as a prophecy in the context of some of the historical books of the Bible. And I'm sorry, you guys can't see that, can you? One of these days I will have a magic whiteboard that does this to where everybody can see. Um, so, so just hold your place in Isaiah. Let me show you a historic example of this where God puts a unfit, too young, too immature leader in power as a part of his judgment. L- look at um we'll flip back to 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll, we'll look here for a minute, okay? Now this happens before Isaiah's time, but it's indicative of the problem. It's indicative of what's going on. Uh, in this time. Now, now you remember, who, who was Rehoboam? Solomon. That's right. And what happened as Solomon left power and Rehoboam and Jeroboam took over, what happened? Israel split. Yeah, Israel split into two nations, okay? So now you don't have one nation. You have a divided nation, a northern and a southern kingdom, sometimes called uh, Israel and Judah, uh, capital cities of Samara, Samaria and uh, Jerusalem. So Rehoboam takes over. Now listen to the description. This is so interesting. Chapter, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 23. Um, it says, Speak to uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and say to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, You must not... Wait a minute, that's not right. Where are we here? Hang on, just a second. Let me find it. Well, that is a typo, and I don't have it. I wrote it down here in my notes wrong. So, okay, so, so what we have here, and I'll, uh, I'll try to figure this out for you next time, but let me let me tell you what, what I was going to, the verse I was going to tell you was going to say, that this guy, Rehoboam, comes to power, and as we see with so many of the kings in this time, he does evil in the sight of the Lord. He does not honor his grandfather, David. He walks in evil, he walks in wickedness, and he comes to power really too early. And, and that's part of the problem, is that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, should not have been put in that position because of his immaturity, and his spiritual condition. Let's see if we can do a better example. Flip the page to chapter 15, just to the right, chapter 15. Let's talk about um, Abijam, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, Abijam became king over Judah. Verse 2, he reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makah, and the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. And that's essentially the same thing as what the verse about uh, Rehoboam spoke that I had had the typo there. So you get the idea. These, These guys are coming into power. They're young. They're inexperienced. They have hearts that don't love God. They walk in evil. They don't follow in Uh, the footsteps of King David. So that's what's going on, is God is allowing these ungodly, immature people to assume great positions of power. You say, well, why would God do that? Again, it's an indictment on what's going on. It's a a way to get their attention to the horrors of what's happening in their society. Okay, so go back to Isaiah chapter 3. Now notice... Isaiah chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Notice what's happening now. So the leaders have become corrupt, and now what's happening? We, we see this, this civil conflict, this social conflict begin. Look at what's going on in chapter 3, verse 5. The people will be oppressed, each one by another, each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, "'You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler.'" And these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day saying, I will not be your healer. For in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. See, that's what's happening, right? No one has any food. No one has any clothes. Uh, They're looking for leadership and and there's nobody who's qualified. They think they find somebody and he's not qualified. Verse 8, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. So there's this societal breakdown And now we come to understand why is this happening? Verse 8, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. There it is. If we wonder why on earth would God do this to his people? It's because their lives are against the Lord. Now remember that psalm that I read a moment ago. Who can abide in God's tent? Who can dwell on his holy hill? What does it say? The righteous, he who has integrity and walks in righteousness in his heart. And and then he gives that description of uh, some examples of that. And we see here, God is no respecter of persons, even if it's his own called chosen people. The standard is the same. And even if it's God's people who have become corrupt, God says, you are coming under my judgment. And again, as a footnote of that, we, we think about today in the American church, in our society, in our realm, um, God's standard does not change. It does not change because we're familiar with God or because we know the books of the Bible or, or we're well taught or we can recite theology or our parents were Christians. And None of that ultimately is the criteria. It's do we we walk with God in our heart? I think part of what what Isaiah reminds us about is how serious God's holiness is and what an offense our sin is against His holiness. Notice this too. They live in open rebellion. This is really really very tragic. Uh, Verse 8, because their speech and their action are against the Lord to rebel against His glorious presence. Verse 9, the expression of their faces bears witness against them. That's really interesting. What do you, what do you think he means by that? The expressions of their face bear witness against them. They're kind of phony, like they're, they're pretending there's a pretense. That's right. Okay, in conflict, that's right, that's right, okay, another thought, what's that, there's a pride, there's a pride. uh-huh, yeah, it's, it's interesting language, the expression of their faces bears witness against them, look at the next part, and they display their sin like Sodom, does that help you with that, with that, what was going on in Sodom, I have some references there, what was going on in Sodom, Sexual sin, and and, and that's what we typically think of is is the homosexual sin, and and that's true. But what did God say? God says two times in the narrative in Genesis that their sin and wickedness was exceedingly great. We say, well, all people are sinners. So what makes makes Sodom get the attention of God where all of society is, is sinful? What was it about Sodom that made it So wicked. Yes. Okay, that's it. They were prideful. You guys were right. But it was the openness. It was the fact that they said, this is what's to be celebrated. Now, I don't know about you, but we think all the way back in the time of Abraham and Lot where sexual sin of even the kind that is typically unspeakable or at least done in the dark is presented in society as something to be celebrated and normal. Now what other society does that make you think of? Do you see that? I mean, that's it. I mean, you know, human beings have been sinful since Genesis 3. We know there's no sinless society but we we do see certain times when different nations and different societies get to the point where they are brazen about their sin. It, in Rome, too. it did happen in Rome and to some degree in Greece also, and what we see is the comparison here to the expressions of their faces bear witness against them, meaning they are living openly in their rebellion, okay you, you get that. It's one thing to say, like in chapter 1, they're going through the motions, right? They're, they're doing their sacrifices, they're bringing their festivals, and, and they're doing all this stuff. And Isaiah says, but now things have gone to the point where they are openly living in rebellion. They're not even trying to hide their sin anymore. And we think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you imagine how offensive it must have been for the Israelites to hear their God say, you're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah? Not just a pagan society, but in their history, that was like the sinner of all sinners, right what is What does Romans one tell us in the progression of sin? in fact we you know we we, we got a few minutes. Uh, hold your place there in Isaiah, flip over to to Romans chapter one here because we're gonna we're going have to keep referencing this this chapter in Romans because Romans provides somewhat of a commentary. ...on what we're seeing, both in the degradation of Israel in Isaiah's time... ...but also the degradation of America in our time, okay? Look at Romans chapter 1, and again, you know the progression. God uh, removes His restraining hand more and more... ...so that people are given over to their sin the more that they reject God... Listen to how this chapter ends, right? God gives them over to a depraved mind, verse 28, to do the things which are not proper. He gives this big old long list of improper, improper things. Listen to the very end, verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Now let that sink in for a minute. What is God's Word telling us here? Let me explain this to you. There is no human being alive today made in the image of God and having a conscience that God gave them who is not indicted by their own sin. Every sinful human being retains enough of the image of God and a conscience to know that what they are doing is wrong before a holy God. Now, they won't admit it. That's the first part of Romans, right? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're never going to admit that to you. But God says, my testimony is sufficient to condemn you. And then if we look at Romans chapter two, what he's going to say is no one gets up on judgment day and says, Oh, Lord, I didn't know. I'm sorry. God says, no, you knew. You knew better. You had a conscience. Uh, You knew of the law of God written on the heart. You see the evidence of God in creation. There's a sufficient testimony to hold people accountable for their sin. But look at this, verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Watch this. They not only do the same, but they do what? They give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's where Isaiah's... People are in his day, and that's largely where we are in America today. It's not—you notice this? It's not acceptance of sin today. It's the celebration of sin that is required today. And if you do not celebrate sin, whatever the sin of the month is, whatever the sin of the generation is, you're a bigot. You're you're a hater. Uh, you're prejudice. Uh, you're, you know, some other four-letter term. Uh, intolerant, judgmental. Um, when, when sin is celebrated in a society in overtly public ways, we know that we are living at the end of Romans chapter 1. And that's not good. It's not good in Isaiah's time. It's not good in our time. So they live in this open, brazen rebellion. Now, let's remind ourselves. Remember we talked about the land covenant, right? This is all about land, that God gave Israel the land that they are residing in. But remember, remember the terms of the covenant. Look at verse 10. Say to the righteous, it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. But verse 11, woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them for what he deserves will be done to him. There it is. You know, if you want to receive the blessings of the land, if you want to see receive the blessings of the covenant, you have to repent and obey. And if you refuse to repent, it will not go well with you. And so he comes back to verse 12 to talk about the ungodly leadership. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. So what does he mean there? The children here references immature, ungodly leaders, right? God had put ungodly, immature, unqualified people, and and they're saying now the the people that are oppressing, the leaders that are oppressing the people of Judah are these unqualified leaders. Notice here too, he says, and women rule over them. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that was happening in public was these kings of Judah, these kings of Israel who were supposed to be God's representatives were falling into some of the same practices of the pagan kings around them. And and in this day and age, it was very common for the kings in this time to have harems. A whole group of um, women... Wives, girlfriends, uh, etc., who were a part of their, um, a part of their lives, and um, this is a. I do want you to turn here because um, you got to see how this works. Because if you say women rule over you, what, what does that mean? Here's what's going on. In Second Kings chapter eight, we look at one of the kings here that's referenced. Second Kings chapter eight, verse sixteen. In this man's life, Jehoram, listen to what happened when this man came to power. 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16. Are you there? Now, in the fifth year of uh, Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, being then the king of Judah... And Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. Now watch this. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. By the way, that's not a good thing. To walk in the way of the kings of Israel meant you did evil in the sight of the Lord, just as the house of Ahab had done. Now watch this. For the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. What's the connection? What did this king's wife do? This isn't isn't Jezebel. No, this is the king of Ahab. Or the the daughter of Ahab, excuse me. And what's going to happen? This daughter of Ahab, the wicked king, brings corruption now into the nation of Judah. They're they're cross-pollinating, okay? You have wicked kings of Israel. Now you have kings of Judah marrying into the family of the kings of Israel. And the corruption of Israel is now coming to corrupt the leadership of Judah. Do you see that? And this is where Isaiah is very interested, not just talking about the leaders, but talking about the ladies. You've heard it said that the man may be the head. But the woman is the neck, right? She turns the head wherever she wants it to turn. And this is so interesting and I just would say to the young people here, I cannot tell you how absolutely significant is, how absolutely significant it is who you decide to marry and that's not the main point of this text, but I think it's certainly an implication of it. I want you guys to look at the history. You say, why, do, why is all this history in the Bible, Pastor Keith? Why this king did this and this king did that? And he was evil and he was good. What are we supposed to see here? One of the reasons, young people, that, that God catalogs wicked kings and good kings in our Bibles for you and I to read is it shows you how influential your spouse will be in your life. And what happened here is an otherwise good king married the wrong girl. And it led to not just his corruption and his leadership being undone, but it leads to the whole nation being negatively affected by a girl who in this day and age had no formal power. She can't command armies. She can't go create policy. She can't enforce rules in society. But you better believe she has massive influence over her husband who can do all those things. So be very, very careful who you marry. And this man, Jehoram, married the wrong girl following the ungodly practices of the kings of Israel who were following the ungodly practices of the pagan kings around them, and it became their undoing. Okay? Yes, sir? Please. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely yeah 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 and, and i think that goes the other way too i mean we, we're as parents we're thinking about putting them in the right arenas where that can happen and i mean first and foremost that should be the local church right i mean that's part of our, our family but and then and then in contrast we we want to try to help them avoid situations where they would be unduly tempted you know by the wrong type of people too and we read that in the book of proverbs also so i appreciate that okay so so, so parents we need we do need to be on our a game here yes yes That's true. Around, but he yes. And the wife. Yeah. He followed, you know, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, so um yeah, Herodias, yeah. The um we could go through the whole Bible and we could do a study called um the wicked influence of ungodly women <laughs> on their husbands, their unsuspecting husbands, right? That's a to us too, women. No, it is. It is, yeah. Don't be that way. Yeah, yeah. Don't be that way, and, and realize, ladies. You know, in, in one degree, God. If you're married, God gives you a role that's a bit more challenging as the helper, as the complement, uh, as as not the one behind the wheel. But that doesn't mean, you know, uh, my my pastor used to say, you know, the husband is called to be the servant leader in the home. The wife is called to be the primary influencer. And that's really true. That's true to the husband. That's true to the children. Um, so absolutely, yeah. Yes. We just want to turn this into a dating series, don't we um, and we should do that we, we should talk about this and I appreciate that all the parents are are, are, are speaking up because th- this is, this is a need guys and, and let's let's talk about this let's we, we do need to do that we look at the family look at the person look at their you know where are they at where are they hanging out you know we're not, we're not starting when they're marriageable age we're starting when they're young to build the things of the Lord in them and as they go into young adulthood we pray that they'll follow in those things um, so yeah we, we absolutely need to do that Becky. right right well and that's i appreciate that because you know again kids going kids young theologians young people um when we go back to those historical sections you see that yeah you know if you had uh if you had godly parents in the home that doesn't automatically mean you're going to walk with god you have to make that choice yourself and likewise you you may look at your parents and say man my parents weren't as godly as my friends over here but you have examples in the Bible of young people who carved a different path by God's grace and they walked in the things of the Lord where their parents did not. So, yeah, there's there's great hope here, guys. And, and yes, we do need to do a dating series sometimes. Let's do that. Can we, add, we, we probably can't add that to our series. We're adding too many things here. But. Anyway, okay, back to the text. Back to Isaiah, verse 3. Okay, so... This is what's going on. Now this now the scene changes here, and in chapter three, verse thirteen, God sets up his courtroom. This is really interesting. He sets up his courtroom to arise and contend and to stand to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. Look at what he says. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of, the Lord God of, where did we see that before? Verse 1, okay? So we see this whole, the, the book ends of this section, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of hosts. It starts with God saying judgment is coming. It ends with a courtroom scene where God brings Judgment. So what do you do in a court? You bring evidence, right? You bring evidence that substantiates the charge. Well, look at what God says. He says to Judah, you have devoured the vineyard. The vineyard is a picture of the nation. And specifically, you have plundered the poor. Now, now here's where we start to see what is it that Israel has been doing that is so bad? What, what does it mean that they've rejected God? Well, we've seen it's not that they aren't going through some religious motions, But they are not in their hearts promoting what real faith is, like providing for the poor, protecting the poor. This is true and undefiled religion in the sight of our God, right? It says here, they're they're not just failing to stand up for the rights of the poor. What are they doing? They're plundering the poor. They're taking advantage of the poor. That word crush means severe maltreatment. And the word grind there, very picturesque, like you're grinding out grain, what they're saying is they are using the poor for their own financial gain. And we're going to see here, as we move into the section of women, we're going to see these women that are really, really, really well decked out in their clothing and in their jewelry. And the implication is that ladies in the society... And the men in the society have taken advantage of the poor to better themselves financially. The dresses and jewelry that many of the ladies are wearing that we're going to see here in the next verse came from the plundering of the poor. So we see that uh, justice is not happening. Society is falling apart as people are taking advantage of the least of these. Now... Watch this. I don't know another section in the Bible that gets this personal with women. Look what it says. Chapter 3, verse 16. The indictment of women. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are... Okay, so we talked about the men, right? The elders, the military leaders, the counselors, the, the governing officials... The, the plowman, the tradesmen, okay, we, we, we've, we've brought the, the judgment down on them. And then he turns and he says, but ladies, I have something to, tell to you, talk to you about. The daughters of Zion are proud and they walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles of their feet therefore well let's just let's just hang on here okay so what's going on with these ladies notice the issue of pride we we've, we've saw we've seen this before but he with laser like precision says women you have a pride problem what happens when you turn from god you're stuck on yourself that's the opposite, right? I mean, there's only two choices on the shelf, right? Pleasing God or pleasing self. And that, that's, that's the only two programs you have. And pride turns away from God and focuses on self and trusts in self. He uses words like proud. Notice here, the head's held high. Literally, it means an outstretched neck. And every woman in this room knows what that means. Now, guys, we might have to, you know, study this a little bit, but it's a walk. It's, it's a walk. It's a gate. It's a, it's a way of carrying yourself. And of course, women, you, you know this, right? You, you, you can walk into the shopping mall and go, oh, look at her. Right? Cause, Cause she's walking with an outstretched neck, is how you would say that in the Hebrew language, right? She's drawing attention to herself. Uh, and, and, and that's the thing. This is all about attracting attention. Now, now, ladies. Now, now, we guys struggle with attracting attention to ourselves, usually on a sports field somewhere, and, and other things like that. Women struggle with a chronic temptation to draw attention to themselves as part of their fallen condition. Uh, you ever notice this? Why do they make women's shoes noisy? I mean, you don't, guys, we we don't go to men's warehouse and say, I'd like some noisy shoes. You know, we we don't, you can't find noisy men's shoes unless they're like some like metrosexual line or something like that. I'm talking about normal guys' shoes, okay? Why are women's shoes noisy? You're laughing at me. Because, because women love the attention. They love the attraction. And, and so much in women's... And ladies, I love you, right? You know that, right? I'm not, I'm not picking on you in particular. I'm just talking about it as a whole. I mean, this is a problem because there's this whole realm of women's society, clothing, jewelry that's designed to put the spotlight on you. So so look at this. From head to toe, right? They have seductive eyes. They're, they're looking for romantic and, and sexual encounters with their eyes mincing steps, that means the way they walk attracts attention. the the tinkling jewelry, right this is jewelry that makes noise, it's ankle bracelets it's it's charms it's neckl- it's things that draw attention and, and notice here this is the problem right they're walking in pride they're, they're walking with setting attraction they're desiring attention by making themselves attractive from head to toe now. Paul's going to say over in the New Testament, there's nothing wrong with, with tasteful dress, with appropriate jewelry, with, with, with a woman that is that is fittingly dressed for the godly, mature woman that she is. There's nothing wrong with that. What we're talking about here is pride and a worldview that says I'm going to do everything I can to attract attention based on self and based on sinful pursuits. Now, now this this is I didn't write this, ladies. Okay, I didn't write this. Verse 17. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. woo, And the Lord will make their foreheads bare. He will afflict the physical appearance of these ladies so that they are ugly. Woo, right? I mean, that's graphic stuff. And in fact, God's not done. Look at 18. In the day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, their headbands, the crescent ornaments, the dangling earrings, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the ankle chains, the sashes, the perfume boxes, amulets. By the way, most of these guys have no idea what we're talking about here. It's like going through a, a lady's bathroom. It just, You know, men can't identify most of the things there okay perfume boxes amulets finger rings nose rings festal robes outer tunics cloaks money purses hand mirrors undergarments turbans god assaults the closets of these women god goes in to the women's section of the department store and has his way right now i don't go to the mall a whole lot anymore and you know amazon's kind of taking all that fun away but but you you ever go to the mall you go to those big department stores and men, you will laugh at this, right? Because you just want to get to the sports section in the back, and the, and and when you go from the mall entrance into the department store, there there's that hundred yard dash through the perfume and and makeup section, and um, I've been known, and boys, we do this, right? Wait, wait. Okay, you guys ready? Yeah, ready. <gasps> You know, we just try to get through there holding our breath, right? And, and you'll notice, have you noticed this? This is genius marketing. There's not a pathway straight through that thing. You've got to do this. Over here, over here, and over here. It, 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 it's like it's like running a drill in football, right? you got to go all, it, it's the maze to slow you down, right? It's the speed bumps to get you to stop and buy something, right? You understand this. But God goes in to Macy's and he has a temple... Money changer overturning event. Why? Why? Because when you make your life about yourself instead of the Lord, that is a serious offense. Now, guys, we got our own problems. We do. And we need to work on those. So let's not think that we get away unscathed here. But ladies, this is a real issue. To live for self, for live for appearance, to live for attention, to live in pride, to live to be noticed. And all of those things compete with your allegiance with God. And that's what's going on here. Now God's not done. Verse 24. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. You're not going to smell pretty. You're going to smell like that that Tupperware of lasagna that got forgotten in the back of your refrigerator three months ago. Instead of a belt, a rope, as in slavery. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Are you getting the picture here? Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty it is in fact one of the commentators one of the commentators made that actual connection between 1945 and coming out of nazi germany that's exactly what happened now the author's going to do something here okay in verses 25 and 26 he's going to change the pronoun stay with me here okay we got to get this we'll land the plane here in just a minute he says your but it's singular All the while, he's been talking about the daughters of of Zion, right? The the ladies, the girls of the society. And in 25, he changes the pronoun and says, your men will fall by the sword. What's he saying? He's saying the women of the society are a picture of the daughter, singular, of Zion. The women in the society, plural, are just a picture of of Israel as a whole, of Judah as a nation, the daughter, singular, of Zion. That's what he said, like mother, like daughter. That's why Isaiah is saying this. He's not just picking on the on the ladies here, he's saying the ladies are a picture of the society as a whole, the daughter of Zion. And their men will fall by the sword, your mighty ones in battle. Her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. Men will die, and women will lament Alone. And because of the imbalance of male to female ratio, as all these men are destroyed in battle, women will be desperate to find a husband. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. They're saying, I'm not bringing anything into this marriage. Just let me be called by your name. I'll provide for myself. That was unheard of in that society. But they're so, so... Desperate to have their reproach taken away, and, and what, what is this interesting? When the women struggle, they don't turn to God for help, who do they turn to they're looking for a man. Ladies, remember that. never look to a man to do what only God can do in your life, okay? Well, we got, we got to end here, but um, man, it's graphic, right? It's horrible. And we say, why would God do that? He's plucking the hair out of... Because that's how serious our sin is. That's what an offense our sin is in the midst of a holy God. Okay? Is there hope? Hope is coming in the next verse. We'll have to wait next week to see it. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this clear picture of your judgment uh, it, it resonates in our ears. The picture is horrible in our minds. And we say, why would you do this? Uh, Father, the reality is that we say, why would you do this? Because our, our view of the horror of our own sin is way too mild. And we do not appreciate your holiness as we ought to. Lord, we're thankful for a Savior who comes in the next verse to rescue us in our trouble, but today we focus on our need to see the ugliness of our sin. Whether it's something as simple as trying to attract attention to ourselves, or something as benign as just going with the crowd and following after what everybody else is doing, that these things indict us under Your law and under Your holy character. Father, remind us that You demand holiness because You're holy. And we are fallen and sinful and we so desperately need a savior thank you for the lord jesus who made a way for us to be forgiven and cleansed of these things and for those of us that are believers might we be mindful of sin that we might be quick to walk in righteousness and turn quickly away from these things that are such an offense to you lord we're grateful we love you cause us to walk in your ways in jesus name amen